it doesn't all have to be hard, traumatic, exhausting. You know, it can also be recognizing beauty. It can be joyful. It can be fun. And it should be because that's what life, life is not supposed to be only one piece of that experience of all the pain. You're supposed to have an antidote to that. And that is connection, awe, wonder, joy. And the beautiful thing about nature is that if you recognize it, it sparks all that. It really will set off a chain of bringing that up in you. And it's always there for you. Been my best ally. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey, hey, beautiful sisters, Time of the Feminine family. This is Shayna dropping in here to give you a little hello. And before we have our episode with the lovely Justin Winters in honor of Earth Day, I wanted to share with you a little about the upcoming experience that I'll be hosting in the month of May. It's called Worth of a Woman. And so this program is really an inspiration of what would this world be like if each woman if each of us really embodied our full gifts, our power, our essence, fully, 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 that we lived the life that we dreamed, that we really knew our worth, that we set clear boundaries, that we spoke our truth, we asked for what we needed, what would that world be like? And so I want you to join me. I want you to join me for this month-long experience as we dive into the roots of worth ancestral healing, internalized misogyny, understanding how to reconcile and forgive everything that we have been taking on in this society, and also understanding the forgotten feminine history. And so I am honored to be doing this program alongside four of my favorite teachers, the most beautiful women that I've had the honor to work with, Anne Baring, Juanita Robertson, Yeye Louisa Tish and Mare Chapman. And if you don't know these women, they've been on our podcast before. They've been featured in some of our other programs that we've shared on the Global Sisterhood platform. But it's such an honor to be working alongside these women. And so I'm inviting you with my whole heart, with open arms. Please join if you feel called to explore your worth, to understand what is in the way of you fully stepping into your power and choosing to live the life that you dream of. And so we're doing this together. We're doing this in sisterhood. So join me for the month of May to really uncover, get real, go into the roots and heal. Do you like that rap? 
So I hope to see you, sister. To learn more, you can go to www.globalsisterhood.org backslash wow. Isn't that fun? Worth of a woman backslash wow. So globalsisterhood.org backslash wow. You can also find it uh, in our link in bio and Instagram, also on our website and all the places. And so I'd love to have you. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and email us and we are taking scholarships. And so don't let money stop you. Join us. This is really a way to understand our worth overall. And so we can always have the abundance and everything that we need. So sister, come along for the ride. Sending you so much love and hope to see you soon. Welcome back to the Time of the Feminine podcast. This is Shana here and I'm here with Lauren and Justin Winters. And today we have a very special interview today. Justin is dedicated to ensuring the long-term health and well-being of all Earth's inhabitants by building climate resiliency, protecting wildlife, and restoring balance to ecosystems and communities. She's been working at this for the past 15 years to accelerate grassroots environmental efforts through cutting-edge philanthropic mechanisms and strategic communications work. She's the co-founder and executive director of One Earth, an organization working to galvanize science, advocacy, and philanthropy to drive collection action on climate change. Through One Earth, she has pioneered a new approach to climate philanthropy by democratizing access to innovative and impactful climate solution projects around the world, enabling donors at all levels to contribute directly to communities and grassroots leaders who are driving change from the ground up. Prior to One Earth, Justin was the executive director of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, where she helped award over $100 million to over 200 high-impact projects in over 60 countries. And so, Justin, it is such an honor to have you here, climate warrior, fellow woman on the path, working towards, you know, giving back to our earth and really celebrating the wisdom of our earth through all of these missions that you're you're working towards. So it's such an honor to have you here today. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Justin, the the podcast title of this is The Time of the Feminine. And so I'm curious in your perspective what the time of the feminine is. I guess I would say, you know, we're in this moment where we're coming out of deep imbalance with the earth, with each other, and this this kind of time of reckoning, recognizing the deep injustices that have been done, both to the earth and to people, and in particular women, it's a moment to transform that and to rebalance the balance of power between men and women, and not just men and women, but also the ways in which we exist in the world. I think our whole system that we're living through right now, and many of us are challenged with came out of a construct of of imbalance. And those systems have to be changed and they have to be changed in a way that are going to be much more just, much more compassionate, much more kind, and recognizing that there's profound power in collaboration and partnership and recognition that everybody has a role to play. Every creature has a role to play in sustaining and creating a vibrant, beautiful planet. And though it's a painful time because of both the reckoning and the destruction that we're witnessing, it's also a moment of profound transformation and a huge opportunity 
to essentially redesign how we live here. Mm. Well said. I feel like I want to highlight the part about all of us having a, a role to play and our unique gifts coming to the table and the learning collaboration. It feels like a, a learning of sharing and how to see each other's gifts and how we can work with all of our gifts. Because for so long within the current paradigm, it's been here are the select few leaders and then here are all the rest of the followers. And what I really appreciate about you working with so much change, working within system change at the level that you do, and maybe we can talk about actually what you're doing at that level. But I appreciate you as like a, an architect in a way. And it's a skill that I don't, I don't have in the same degree. You know, I can tell you have so much heart, but I can also tell that you have the type of mind that understands the current system that we're living in and can work within it to create change. And I would really love to talk about one, the journey that you've been on as a clearly a very soulful, deep, heart centered woman, but also somebody who has like really thrived and made it into, I'm sure, boardrooms of people that women have fought to get a, a seat at that table. And I would love to just understand that journey for you. I mean, what a great question. And it has been, it's been a really wild journey because it wasn't anything that was plant. I was always super passionate about nature and animals and the earth. I was an activist in high school and, you know, created my high school's first environmental club and implemented our first like recycling program and created some very controversial campaigns to get people fired up about recycling. If there is such a thing of getting fired up about recycling. <laughs> and then I didn't know what my path forward with that was because I kind of made this, nobody really gave me a clear pathway forward to be involved in environmental issues unless you were a scientist. And my skill set wasn't science. I was interested in science, but it wasn't what I was naturally good at. I was naturally good at visual arts and I just didn't see how I was going to incorporate that. So it wasn't until after I went through college and I had moved out to Los Angeles and had this very random opportunity after working in film and television for a while and waiting tables and doing whatever I could to live and exist in Los Angeles, that I had this opportunity to work on Leo's first documentary, 11th Hour. Since I had some film and television background and they needed extra hands and help with it, I just threw my hat in the ring. I knew somebody who was working at his foundation at the time. And so I had this really special experience that felt kind of just lucky and maybe faded even. And so with that film, I did a lot of kind of associate producer type roles. I was working with the 72 experts that are in the film and thinking about an action campaign to build from the film. And so that whole experience just crystallized for me that I didn't want to do anything else. When you watch that film, and it's a very heavy film, <laughs> it does not hold back on the reality of what we were facing. And it was very, you know, in many ways ahead of its time. It came out in 2007. But I remember watching the whole film through for the first time, and it just floored me. And it just made it clear, what else? why would I do anything else but anything I can do to drive change and create awakening around the state of our planet? And so 
I was lucky and then I jumped on it um, and got really creative about what we could do around the film and then ultimately what Leo could do with his um, name and brand and position to try to help and activate and grow the environmental movement. And so that whole journey and then 13 years of, of really being given a lot of space and trust to build something unique and entrepreneurial in the philanthropic and communication space. It just felt very faded and very lucky, but I ran with it and I treated it like a massive creative project. You know, I had access to both people in positions of power around the world who were, who were or weren't working on climate and environment issues. And then the ability, because we were able to get resources out the door to build true authentic partnerships with many different partners on the ground facing the ramifications of climate and, and biodiversity loss and climate justice issues. So it was just this very unique journey that I made the most out of. And I always approached it with a great curiosity and compassion and a willingness to not create something out of a box or out of a mold, but to actually identify where is there a problem? How could we do something different and show a different path forward? And that opportunity was the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, it really, it shaped my thinking. It gave me the opportunity to understand the complexity of the world and the systems of the world. I had no idea before. I mean, sure, I went to high school. I went, I got a high school degree. I got a college degree. I had a really wonderful education, but that is not the same as real world experience, not just at the local level, but also being able to drop into and understand international policy and the economic situation of different countries and being able to travel and see what different countries are facing, what different communities are facing. There's something very powerful about having the opportunity to see the world and start to knit together the history of the world from such a wide array of different viewpoints. And that was, it was an honor, but it also just, just taught me so much. I mean, I was so naive when I started doing this work. I had no idea, like, Really none. And I remember going to Abu Dhabi for the first time for a clean energy conference, ironically, <laughs> and seeing, standing outside my hotel and looking at what the kind of wealth that represents the fossil fuels that have been pulled out of the ground and used for our global energy system, what that looks like when a country has those amount of resources and how it in many ways, destroys their cultural fabric, that amount of wealth, and then the wealth divide between the laborers in a country versus the people who have access to the money. I mean, that blew my mind. I, I couldn't wrap my head around how big the problem was, both economically or logically, like what are fossil fuels? Where do they come from? What do they represent? And those are the kind of things that traveling having access to those boardrooms, seeing how the world works, it can really shape a very thorough and comprehensive understanding of systems. And then you start to wonder, 
well, how are we going to change that? And that starts to crack open thinking in a, like you said, in a kind of a design architecture way, like how can we facilitate change with millions of people? What are the systems that need to be redesigned and how can you support the pathways to, to driving that kind of change and making it a truly collective effort, just, you know, that requires many, many, many people. So yeah, it's been a wild, <laughs> wild journey. There's so much I want to, to ask about and pull apart because in some ways I relate to parts of your story very deeply. And I can see myself like in your work and in the way you see things and in the privilege that you've also had to be able to get to the top of these mountains, let's call them, and be able to see the amount of wealth and the power that lies in a small amount of hands. You know, I used to work in the venture capital industry and I was working in San Francisco right around me too. And that's when my nut cracked, as you were saying, and I really got to see the power dynamics that were there. And that's what actually opened me to to the work that I'm doing now. I didn't know that that's what was happening. I didn't know that that cracking was going to lead me to this work, but it opened side something in me that was calling to the feminine essence that this is missing, this is being undervalued, and this relates to everything I've ever cared about. It relates to the earth, it relates to the extraction, to everything that's been happening. And I'm curious because like you, I'm, I'm able to see the problem, right? And I'm able to go in and see these systems and also to see the potential solutions. And I'm curious if you can share about what exactly you are beginning to see when you began to feel one earth and what that was and how it was going to take place, what, what it was going to create, like what problem was there and then what, what kind of solution you were driving forth? Great question. And I'd say that we haven't totally figured out the full answer to that yet because it's a collective Mm -hmm. story. And a lot of what we've done at One Earth is to create the space for and some of the tools to support collective action for the earth and for each other. And that's, we're really at the beginning of that journey, you know, and it's because it's so much reliant on the collaboration of many, some of those pieces are really just in the beginning stages and they will continue to get built out. But I mean, to answer your question, for me, when I was working at Leo's foundation, A, you know, we had access to, we ended up building an audience of 70 million people and growing. And I knew that there was great potential positivity and power in those communications channels. And that's what we were always trying to drive. And you could also see a real lack of clarity about the solutions to these great conundrums we're facing and crises that we're facing and a growing sense of climate nihilism. And which just broke my heart to see how many people, and it's only gotten worse. I mean, it's it's way worse now than it was when I started this work. But how many people, and in particular young people, are completely aware of the problem 
and and how severe it is, but feel like they have absolutely no agency in solving it, that it's not technically possible to solve it, and that they have a very tiny, almost insignificant role in solving it. And that is what I wanted to change. I wanted to know, A, is it possible for us to get there? What's the goal line? You know, I could feel in my bones that there was a possibility that we could collectively create a very different future for ourselves that was not this horrific apocalyptic scenario that everybody was, you know, creating for us. Because I believe in people, I believe in our collective power, and I believe in, I believe that humans are incredibly creative and compassionate. Most of us are. And that if you provide a pathway to hope, it's extraordinarily mobilizing for people to participate in building something different. So One Earth was born out of a desire to have a really pragmatic, clear solutions pathway to underpin a vision of what could be possible. And so it started in order to get those answers. And because we had access to so many different scientists around the world and institutions, we started really looking towards those partners to answer the question. And what we ended up finding out was that there hadn't been a climate model produced that proved that it was possible to solve the twin crises of climate and biodiversity loss with existing solutions. So we went down this big rabbit hole of figuring out how to do that. And luckily ended up partnering with two leading IPCC authors, one from University of Technology, Sydney, and the other from German Aerospace Center. And it was a two and a half year process, but that climate model was published and finished in 2019. It's, it was published by Springer Nature, one of the biggest scientific publishers in the world. It's a 500-page book. I don't recommend reading it. <laughs> but the cliff notes are, the super high-level cliff notes are, yes, we can still solve this. We can limit global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C, and we can do it with existing solutions. And out of that climate model, and really working for many years to synthesize it, understand it, break it down and, and create communications assets around it, it gave birth to this three pillar solutions framework to solve the climate crisis. And that is that we've got to do three things if we want to solve this in time. And that is a transition to 100% renewable energy. Second is we need to protect, connect and restore 50% of the world's lands and oceans. And then the third piece is that we need to transition our food and fiber systems to regenerative agriculture. And so those three pillars and having it backed by science started to build a framework, a very solid architecture um, to the vision of what's possible. And so that is like the beginning of the journey with One Earth and what we were after. And there's much more to, sh to share, but we started there. That was the beginning stepping stone to it. I am so moved by your hope. It's something really powerful. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, want to be really serious about it. I actually have tears in my eyes because when we lose hope, there are no solutions. Mm -hmm. And you feeling in your bones, the hope, I'm just so moved. I'm so moved. And when you said, we can solve this with existing solutions, I 
literally started crying because it's just like the power of the the creative power that mysterious call, power call it god that lives inside of us that's hope it's faith i mean it's written about there's something so real about it and there's a a spiritual teacher but more than that a man who was a first generation descendant of slaves his parents were freed and he was a first generation free on uh, brazilian soil He's a, a seven-foot black man, and his name is Raimundo Irineu. And he was known in this one region of Brazil, in the Amazon, to be a profound healer, profound teacher, I mean, said to perform miracles. One thing he said that I love and I live by is everything in this world can be healed. <laughs> and that's what I think of with your hope, you know, and just if, if I just hope that women listening to this can feel that and, that, and, and can feel it and, and let it vibrate inside of them. And that leads me to my next question. What can we do? Like, how do we as individuals collaborate towards this vision? Well, one more quick thing to throw in there before I answer that question. It's not just the science piece that is so that that builds my at least my internal sense of of hope. I think that's one part of the equation. The other part that gives me a ton of hope, which is also related to the work that we do and what that we're trying to do, is the millions of people around the world that are doing the work on the ground that is necessary. So what is what was such a profound experience for me was the opportunity over over more than a decade to meet those people, to be in relationship with those people, to get them resources, to be strategic support, to be a friend, to be a partner, to be an ally. Meeting those people, seeing their work, seeing it grow and blossom, seeing them overcome extraordinary challenges. That for me is, is that safety net, if you will, of people of incredible leading lights, that's what your hope should be based on. Yes, the science says it's still possible. It'll take everybody to get there, but we have a massive movement of millions of people, in particular women, who are doing profound work. And it has been an honor of a lifetime to be working in support of that network. And so to your question around what we can do, there's, I mean, there's a lot of pieces that we're still working on to kind of activate that. You know, what, what does it really mean to, to drive collective action? But for right now, I mean, I would certainly invite everybody to join our community by following us on social media, signing up for our newsletter, and most importantly, exploring the One Earth Navigator and Project Marketplace on our website. That is the beginning of how we're starting to capture and do storytelling around the amazing leaders on the ground driving this kind of change. So you can go on that navigator and you can learn about the bioregion that you live in. You can, you can understand the map of nature in your bioregion and get familiar with it. So one piece of this, I think, is about reconnecting to your sense of place having an understanding of place, not according to your country or your, your city, 
but to by nature, by place, by earth. The second piece is exploring, and this is a this is a big master project in some ways. So we're not, you know, we don't have tons of projects in every single bioregion around the world. We've got about 130 projects right now that have been recommended to us by really trusted advisors, by by networks of people that have have worked deeply with different communities around the world. At any rate, we have 130 projects that are up on the project marketplace that align with those three pillar solutions pathways. So these are communities that are helping in the transition to 100% renewable energy. They're protecting and restoring nature, or they are helping in the transformation to regenerative agriculture. And each of those projects has a beautiful story, has needs for support. Right now, what you can do is go on and even and even donate five, ten, fifteen, twenty-five dollars to those projects. One Earth does not take a fee; it goes directly to those projects. But I think it's a twofold thing. You know, it's about understanding your place, understanding the local heroes that are driving change lifting up their stories and amplifying the incredible solutions they're, they're um, leading and also supporting them. You know, down the road, we hope um, we're working on this now, but it's going to be a bit, like I said, a larger scale project. We hope to be able to facilitate additional types of ways in which you could provide support or build community in your bioregion or volunteer hours to specific projects. We're getting there, but for now, just Connecting into your place and connecting into that global movement of people that are driving change are actually very profound actions that you can take on top of going outside and getting your feet on the earth and reconnecting to nature, which is an essential piece of it. Honestly, this this map is one of my, my favorite features you guys have, and I've been really inspired by it because I, I work on another project uh, called Niushin. It means the spirit of the forest in the Yawanawa language. And part of the mission of Niushin is to build a project marketplace such as the one that you've already built. This is why collaboration is important, because when there's already <laughs> people building things, then you don't have to reinvent the wheel. But the whole point of the platform that we were imagining was to share resources within the Amazonian villages, because for them, the forest is their pharmacy. And so they have so much information about the medicinal plants and their ancestral knowledge of how to take care of the land. And in different pockets of the Amazon, they've lost a lot of that information. So how do you bring back knowledge sharing? How do you bring back resource allocation? How do you how do you kind of like bridge these these worlds that are connected in one way but have been disconnected because of all the modernization that's happened? And so I really appreciate what you're showing you know, as is possible with the project marketplace for people to get involved, because I think that involvement is so important. Well, first of all, I'd love to get some of those projects up on the project marketplace. So we should talk about that. And the map that you were speaking about is the project marketplace, not the global safety net, right? Because we could talk about that too. That might be an interesting piece to share. Yeah, let's segue into the global safety net. I was talking about the project marketplace. So there's another tool, which you know, will become kind of part of a more seamless integrated experience for everybody. But another big piece of science that we spearheaded with a coalition of groups is something called the global safety net. So that middle solutions pathway that I was speaking about, the protection and restoration of 50% of the world's lands and oceans, that was its own massive effort. 
again, about a two and a half year effort. I don't know why all of our projects have taken two and a half years, but it seems to be the magic number for us. But, you know, our question again was how much, what is the roadmap of nature that needs to be protected in order to both stave off the extinction crisis, biodiversity loss, but also keep critical carbon stores in the ground? And that is the, you know, that effort produced the global safety net. So it's actually, it was published, it's a published piece of, of work that was published in 2020, you know, peer reviewed and published. Then we partnered with Google Earth Engine and created a visual tool in order for folks to understand what that roadmap of nature looks like in every, in every region and in every country. So you can go to globalsafetynet.app and click on the, well, first you can watch the video, which kind of just explains how the science was produced, which is an interesting overview. And then there's a viewer that you can click on that allows you to zoom all over the world and look at the global safety net of nature that needs to be protected in your region or country. Eventually, you can imagine having the experience of being on our project marketplace, seeing the the bioregion that you live in and seeing the roadmap of nature in your bioregion. And then the collection of amazing organizations and leaders that are specifically doing work to protect and regenerate the earth. For now, each of these tools, each of these projects was a massive undertaking. And eventually the goal is to have that be a more integrated experience that folks can wrap their minds around because it is quite deep. You know, it, it takes it takes time to kind of get up to speed with understanding these different elements and how they work together. How do you think you get people to care? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I don't, I don't think people care because of the science that you tell them. You know, I think that that's like a, a, a piece of the equation. I think you get people to care by making both the crisis and the opportunity for transformation a personal one. It needs to be relatable. They need to see, they need to have context for it. And that's why, you know, I've, I've always felt like, and part of the reason that we built the Project Marketplace too, was to make this place-based, to make this global story and challenge that we're facing a local personal experience. And a lot of that is done through through storytelling. You know, it, it really does, I mean, communications and storytelling is a big piece of that. And, you know, if you want to look at a system-wide problem, most of the media that we're all consuming is extraordinarily negative, not telling the story of the folks that are driving the change on the ground. It's, it's very focused and entrenched in the current systems that we have and the problems that we face. Or it's just busy content that is relatively meaningless you know, and, and keeping everybody preoccupied and disempowered. So it's, you know, one of the big system-wide things that needs to change is, is the media, the storytelling, what we're giving space to, how we're protecting our time to give our, our, our brains a chance to think creatively and to be in touch with ourselves and the earth. That alone is disruptive. To step out of the current system that is asking you to be a consumer of media, of products, et cetera, <laughs> stepping out of that and giving space for something else to emerge, that alone is a disruptive, powerful thing to do. Sure is. 
When I lived in the Amazon for six months, I had no screens at all. And it was disruptive to my identity. And I went deeper than I ever thought I could possibly go to the point where I was like, okay, get me out of here. Get me a hot shower. <laughs> get me a cell phone. Because where were you in the Amazon? I was in the region of Acre, Brazil. Wow. And I feel like what you're saying is so true, just this disruptive, like when we unplug from just extracting and just really, it's just like consuming, 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 consuming. And we have space to meet ourselves. When we've been so disconnected from ourselves, the meeting ourselves again is painful. Even a day on the computer and then having to sit with the frenetic energy that I was potentially in all day and having to feel the sensations in my body, it's easy to be like, let's watch a TV show. It's like, it's, I'm appreciating that in this time where there's more awareness around climate change, there's also more awareness around trauma and what we are as a human collective experiencing. And nobody is, is, nobody is free from pain. Nobody's free from the human experience. We've inherited through so much trauma in the past, what our grandparents went through in our own bodies and our own beings. And it feels like also teaching us to care about ourselves and have resiliency to feel what's really here feels like a good component adding to the, the capacity to, once we are able to feel ourselves, have the capacity to feel another or our planet. And I'm, I'm just curious about like speaking of, you know, emotions. I'm just curious about how you process <laughs> all that you are exposed to. That's a great question. And look, by by no means have I do I always practice what I'm saying we need to be doing. You know, I'm I live in Los Angeles. I definitely watch television shows. I definitely am on my computer way too much. Um, but it's making it really apparent to me, especially, you know, I do feel like the last several years with COVID and our politics and the birth of the, not the birth, but the renewed immigration around social justice and the very specific trauma that has happened and occurred to, to bring that movement to the fore and our extreme media that allows us to, to be constantly hit with all the things that are happening. It's a lot. I have, I do hold a lot. And I always have since I've been doing this work, but it has gotten more intense. And I, I struggle to hold it. I struggle to find the space to allow my feelings to move through me. And I, I'm very empathic. So I, I will take in other people's suffering, I will hold space for them, but I won't let the feelings really move through me. And I've suffered from migraines my whole life you know, and tension headaches, not surprising, <laughs> but I've been trying to learn how to give space away from work, give space away from screens. Like the other day I was already fried and it was only noon and I, I just gave up and went outside and gardened for an hour and it felt so good to, 
<laughs> to just be outside in the sun, you know, recognizing this little beautiful patch of biodiversity in my front yard and just being present with it. And it completely reinvigorated me. And then sometimes I have to give myself the space to cry and let, whether it's my fear or stress or frustration with the systems that we're up against or really feeling for partners that are going through a lot of trauma, um, I got to let it move through me. So I've been trying to, because it's kind of an interesting dilemma to, not dilemma, or I guess it's an interesting experience to recognize the very kind of male-oriented constructs of how we've been taught to be tough, be strong. That means don't cry. That means don't have any feelings about it. That means don't let people know that you're vulnerable. And so I've it's been an interesting journey for me to see how a lot of my own pain and suffering is because I don't know how to let emotions move through me. And so I'm trying to teach that to myself and at the same time, give space to, to my team and my, my friends and my allies in the work for them to show up and be vulnerable and share how they feel. I mean, that's the best I can do. I'm certainly not the master of it. I don't, <laughs> I haven't, really figured it out, but it's, it's a journey. Mm. I'm so here as your sister and your ally and like cheering you on. Like, I just feel so much in my heart, just this deep respect and gratitude and yeah, like we're on the same team, you know, yep. and that feels really good. And I went outside today and I was noticing how our star blossom peach tree is flowering. And it has these bright pink flowers. And, you know, you're in Southern California too. We've been getting so much rain. And it's been so magical to go outside and just like take in the bright yellow flowers and purple and like how they just sprung out of nowhere, you know, weeds and how resilient, yeah. you know, life is. Just emerge everywhere in the sidewalks, like out of the places where I just weeded everything. And all of a sudden <laughs> there's more. <laughs> But it's like we have we have that life force inside too to keep powering us even through these these challenging times where it feels like we have to be, you know, in some ways these flowers emerging out of the sidewalk. These I tell this a lot, this this visual that I have. It's like this giant industrial wasteland. And like the feminine rising is like the flowers just emerging out of all these structures, all these systems to bring nature back, to bring life force back, to really honor life, to honor that life force that exists in all of us and to change our economy to one that values health and well-being, you know, amongst, you know, the the thing now, growth, which, you know, we know how that's gone. And so, yeah, I just, I just have a lot of respect for you. Likewise. I mean, that's so beautiful what you shared. It's a, you know, the other piece of it is and I feel like folks are recognizing this and talking about it much more, but it doesn't all have to be hard, traumatic, exhausting. You know, it can also be recognizing beauty. It can be joyful. It can be fun. And it should be because that's what life, life is not supposed to be only one piece of that experience of 
all the pain, you're supposed to have an antidote to that. And that is connection, awe, wonder, joy. And the beautiful thing about nature is that if you recognize it, it sparks all that. It really will set off a chain of bringing that up in you. And it's always there for you. Been my best ally. Shana and I sometimes reference when talking to women about the subtle feelings of comparison or competition that just a result of all the oppression. We're like, we're all flowers in the garden. (laughs) And other flowers don't look, one flower doesn't look at another flower. It's like that flower has more petals than I do. Or it just doesn't happen. We just all shine towards the sun together, make a beautiful field. And with that being said, I have a question about collaboration. Sure. I had an opportunity in 2016 after Global Sisterhood launched to to be a delegate at the UN for the Commission of the Status of Women. It was a high honor for me to and a wake up call too. And I remember sitting in on many panels and having people discuss this. Like, okay, why are we working in silos? You know, why are we working in silos? And what I like about One Earth is it feels like this big umbrella that connects people. And I love that. That's just such a beautiful vision. And Global Sisterhood has a a similar, similar vision. Like we're all on the same team. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, it feels like partnerships can be confusing with the sharing of resources and the scarcity that can, that can come from that, especially things that are grassroots or off the ground. People are so, have their plates so filled. How do they connect with another group, et cetera? And so I just love to hear what you've learned around this. Some, some tips for collaboration. Yeah, it's, I mean, what you spoke of around scarcity is a real problem, right? Like, I mean, just to focus on climate and environment for a moment, and you probably know this, but less than 2% of all philanthropic capital goes to climate and environment um, organizations and issues. And just a fraction of that possibly is as low as a quarter of that actually reaches grassroots community-led efforts. So to me, I mean, this, this, this paradigm needs to change because the resources are actually out there. They're just not flowing in the right direction. And it does create this kind of, and not only that, not only like the limited resources in the space currently, but also the game that you have to be in to secure those resources <laughs> is insane. It is there are so many barriers to accessing it. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, do we really want grassroots community-led organizations to be so distracted from their work, just trying to secure the money to do the work? I mean, that's so stupid. Let's be honest. Don't we want them doing the actions that are necessary, whether it's helping a whole community of local farmers revert back to older, better, regenerative, ecologically minded ways of farming that bring back the health of the soil and solve the climate crisis? I mean, don't we want them doing that instead of putting together perfect marketing materials or filling out 100 page applications just so they can get $50,000? That all is crazy. The system is really challenging. And it's because it's so challenging to secure those resources, it has created this sense of scarcity and competition. And there are, you know, A, I'm just committed to being exploratory and 
innovative and thoughtful about new ways in which we can change that paradigm, ways in which we can change resource flow, and ways in which we can lift up the organizations doing the work and make it easier for resources to flow them. And that's, that is also a very practical problem to solve. You know, it's, it's getting into the nitty gritty of really figuring out how you, you, you quickly bring resources in and then quickly allocate them to different countries around the world with different economic systems. It's, it's also a very like logical thing to problem solve around, but magic can really happen when when those when the resource flow and the basic needs are met when the basic needs are met and people aren't fighting for food water air and a home beautiful things can happen and so that is i mean maybe to give you a very specific example of where historically i got to see that kind of magic happen you probably know this organization but it's called amazon frontlines I'm on the board of Amazon Frontlines and have been with them and, you know, friends with the organization and the team that does the work for a very long time since kind of they emerged. The executive director of that organization came from a Western, a Western kind of campaigning effort to fight for the rights of the indigenous communities in Ecuador that had been impacted by the Chevron oil spills. And was really frustrated with how much money, time, and effort had to go into taking on Chevron and fighting them in the courts. And meanwhile, indigenous communities, families, kids were sick and dying of cancer because they had no access to clean water in the middle of the rainforest. No access to clean water, which is insane. And so he grew really frustrated with that. And had spent extensive time traveling in Ecuador, meeting with those families and building relationships with those communities. And they came up with the idea that if they had access to clean water and their basic needs started to be met, then they could build health and strength and they could fight back. And so at the time I was at running Leo's foundation. And to me, that made perfect sense. That made perfect sense. Communities that are sick and dying of cancer can't begin to take on fossil fuel companies and corrupt governments. That's insane. (laughs) They're worried about making it to the next day and surviving. So that project started as Give Clearwater before it became Amazon Frontlines. And the first goal was to um, build and install clean rainwater catchment systems in every household right adjacent to every household across four communities in in the Amazon, in the Ecuadorian Amazon. So for several years, it was building all of that. What came out of that was that four tribes that historically had been very fractured and not working together, in large part out of scarcity, and because the fossil fuel companies were intentionally creating schisms between them, What happened out of that project, out of building solutions in community and in partnership together, they built the Sabo Alliance. So four tribes came together because they had, they were building solutions, building relationship and building trust. And that project went on to then become Amazon Frontlines, where they have used, they've partnered with universities around legal strategies. They've 
you know, built very robust movements across the Amazon to find the right tools and mechanisms to protect their communities, their lands and their waters. And I think it was, it was only a couple of years ago that it finally led to a big win in court where they formally ended up, you know, getting, getting the rights to their lands over 5 million acres of rainforest. I think it was 5 million acres. So this is a, this is a, a story that gives me a lot of hope and it shows the deep connection between addressing human needs leading to community power and trust building, and then building an entire movement to protect ecology and biodiversity and culture. And that kind of a story, there's many stories like that, they, but they take a long time. These are stories that most people don't hear, but those kind of stories are happening all over the world. And they are beautiful and very profound. And if you want to have long-term resilience, really led by communities that have a deep relation to each other and a, a deep relation to their place, their land and their water, it can really affect profound, long-term, sustainable change. Beautiful. I've been connected to that story listening to Stephen Donziger. Mm -hmm. He was one of the lawyers that ended up being imprisoned in his own house because Chevron like fought back against him and wow, super interesting and horrible how much power that these big oil companies have and the way that they use it. But I want to I wanna talk about grassroots movements and the need for funding because this is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about since I started working at Global Sisterhood, right? Like I came from the world of venture capital where there's so much money being deployed so quickly to projects that actually you know, 95% of them don't have longevity. It's just to try and see if you can build a unicorn. And and a lot of that money is just like, in my opinion, wasted on highly educated white men to explore, you know, their tech ideas. And when I joined Global Sisterhood, you know, since the beginning, everything we've been doing has been based around like, it's actually a very interesting but difficult story that Global Sisterhood's had in its past. We had to take on a lot of debt in order to get Global Sisterhood to be free. So we like birthed into the world as an individual organization with all this debt that we had taken on from these male investors that it's a very complicated story. But, you know, from the beginning, we were underwater. And so this question of funding has always been core to my identity within this organization because it's like we're doing such good work and I see women all over the world doing such incredible work. And the biggest problem that everybody has is how do we get access to capital? How do we actually get to spend the time doing the things that we're naturally good at instead of thinking about constantly how do we make money? How do we make our audience grow so that we can make more money instead of doing the actual work? And now that I'm working with organizations down in the Amazon and I've been like really in the grassroots, you know, working with organizations down in Guatemala that do incredible work building women's circles with indigenous women that have nothing. These women have absolutely nothing. They don't even have trust in one another. And when you bring them together in women's circles, they begin to tell stories. They begin to laugh. They begin to have like some sense of worth to learn how to make money. But like this organization is constantly struggling for money. And so I'm like... From where I sit, right, I just get to see out into this like vista of women 
and peoples that are doing such beautiful work. And the constant problem is how do we get access to capital to allow them to actually do the work that they're good at? You know, and so I'm curious about ways, creative solutions that you've thought of just, you know, for my own interest of like how we can begin to reallocate this like wealth pyramid to things that actually give back. I mean, great question slash giant conundrum to solve. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think there there's probably some better examples that I wouldn't be able to pull out right now that relate to different streams of capital, like you're speaking about, like um, venture capital and some of the new and emerging models and investment opportunities that are specifically focused on investing in women-led concepts, ideas, funds. Because I, I mean, it's been an interesting couple of years for me because since one Earth became its own nonprofit and an organization working in the space. I have suddenly been exposed to and in conversation with so many different folks who are involved in so many different streams of capital. And that whole universe of the different types of capital has really broadened my view into the complexity of this situation. <laughs> Because pr prior to that, I was really focused on philanthropy, which is a big part of the equation and should be. I mean, I can point to something that I think is that you'll relate to and that um, I think is a little bit scary is that there is a lot of growing momentum across the space, especially with those that have resources, whether it's philanthropists or, or folks that are investors in acknowledging the climate is, is in crisis and they want to be investing in, whether it's philanthropically or with investment dollars, they want to be investing in climate related solutions. But what I'm seeing is the same problem at hand in that they, there's a lot of excitement. We can invest in climate solutions and make tons of money. And there's not going to be any need to do philanthropy anymore. There's no role for that. And that's just simply not true. Because there's a whole array of solutions that need to be seeded and supported. And many of them are never going to be for-profit ventures. Many of them are never going to be profitable from a monetary sense. So, we're making progress in that people are realizing that there's a problem, but they, they're utilizing the same model. They, it's still a model of we could make tons of money doing this. And wow, this would be an incredibly innovative climate technology solution. And I'm going to make millions of dollars off of it. And maybe it'll also save the world. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, so many of the solutions, especially in that nature conservation and restoration solutions pathway, are very reliant on philanthropic capital and ultimately more government-oriented dollars. So, you know, we are starting to see in the movement of philanthropy a real move towards an understanding of how unjust philanthropy has been, the need for trust-based philanthropy, which... I didn't realize way back when, but I was practicing that out of the gate. I didn't, I didn't know that 
but it became really clear to me that it was not, I was definitely going against the status quo. I wasn't requiring that organizations, you know, provide a receipt for every single expense that they have. You know, I wasn't requiring that they fill out impossible metric and outcome evaluation forms. <laughs> we would give them kind of seed investments and help them help them grow and invite them to share challenges and setbacks so that we could understand the context in which they were doing their work. And so gratefully, I do see the space acknowledging the injustice of, at least in the philanthropic space, the in, injust systems that are at hand and need to change. But it's just not changing fast enough. And it's not bringing new dollars into the space quickly enough. So there's, you know, I think we're kind of at the beginning of what I hope will be a big paradigm shift. Can we talk about Lilith? Lilith. So I was an art history major and really loved understanding or the opportunity to understand history through a visual picture, right? And when you study art, like I did with way too much focus on Western art, let's be honest, um, with a number of religious paintings, <laughs> Lilith came into view in several kind of key pieces in the Renaissance and before the Renaissance. And I was like, who is this Lilith character? I don't even know about her. And when you read the Old Testament, it turns out that Eve was not the first woman, at least in this, you know, this construct. It was actually Adam and Lilith. And Lilith was equal to Adam. She, Adam was not more than her. They were equal. And Lilith got into trouble because Lilith didn't want to listen to all the rules that were being applied to her. One of those, it's literally in the Old Testament, is that she wanted to be on top. <laughs> having sex. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And so she ultimately, because she was so liberated and wanted to do her own thing, she got cast out of the Garden of Eden. And so the history of Lilith is that she got cast out of the Garden of Eden and she went and had sex with many different creatures and created tons of things like vampires and goblins and... <laughs> She really got maligned, but mostly because she was a rule breaker and didn't want to be under Adam's thumb. And so the story of Lilith is just a fascinating one and one that really should be elevated to a new generation. And now, you know, looking back to, I guess, the 90s or whenever the Lilith Fair was, we can all understand why those incredible female musicians latched on to the story of Lilith and used that as the framing for that, that concert series, you know? So yeah, there you go. There's your, your Lilith in, in two minutes. <laughs> and I just want to ask you too, like if we were to elevate this archetypal, like Lilith character inside of ourselves, how do you think that would help us in turning back towards earth stewardship? Maybe with us, I mean, I think Lilith had a sense of agency. She was equal from the start. There was no question that she should have agency in how she wanted to have sex, how she wanted to move about the world. She didn't want to stay in the Garden of Eden. She wanted to make her own 
way forward. Um, she was willing to challenge authority. She was really empowered. You know, she's a, she, she was our original roadmap. We got to get back to Lilith. Dark side of the moon, dark goddess, <laughs> the destruction of nature. All of it is within the feminine. And we ask every guest the same question. And for you, I would like you to, if you're open to it, just as an empath, as somebody who's deeply connected to the earth, just take a moment to really connect with Mama Gaia, the, her, her power, her intelligence, her love. And if she were to speak a message through you for all of us, what would she have you say? I've got your back if you have mine. You know, you're not, you're not alone by any stretch of the imagination. You are deeply, deeply connected to millions and millions of life forms and creativity and energy and life force with immense power to transform. So hold on to hope, take action, have my back and have each other's back. So it is. Thank you so much, Justin, for being here today. It was such an honor to interview you. And I'm going to see you next week, I believe, at Bioneers. Amazing. I can't wait. That'll be so fun. Wait. Yes. I've, I mean, I feel very lucky to have been in conversation with you, too. Thank you for making my Friday mm. and my month. So we will we will continue this conversation offline and hopefully do more things together. Ah. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast with the beautiful, incredible Justin Winters. If you are interested in supporting One Earth and learning more, Justin, will you please again repeat how women can get in touch? Sure. So our website is One Earth, all spelled out. So O-N-E and then earth.org. You can also follow us on Instagram, same thing, you know, at One Earth, Twitter, Facebook, all the channels, and would love for you all to sign up for our newsletter as we are figuring out how to build more robust community and definitely an invitation to explore the Navigator and the Project Marketplace, which you can find on our website. Awesome. I would love to introduce our new sponsor, GoddessWell.co. GoddessWell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self, specifically formulated by women for women to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support, and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule. So there's various lines. There's the Harmony line for harmony and mood. There's the Radiance line for PMS and menopause relief. There's the Serenity line for UTI relief. And each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the Harmony pill for mood and hormone aid. 
and I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils and I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey and I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. So what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood, is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself, and she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves, and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister, to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code SISTERHOOD, and buy one and get one free to give to a friend. Okay, everybody. See you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us since for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way.